I'm sure all of you know by heart John 3.16, so let's just quote it today. Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther said that this verse is the Bible in miniature. And he had a point there. Because how does John 3.16 begin? Begins with God, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. Well, how does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does John 3.16 end? Eternal life. How does the Bible end? Revelation chapter 21 and 22. There's the new Jerusalem. God is there and his servants see him face to face and nothing unclean can enter in but only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb can come into that perfect, spotless dwelling place of God. Eternal life. How does John 3.16, uh, what's the centerpiece of that verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The cross is the center of John 3.16, and the cross is the center of our Bible. It splits the old covenant from the new covenant, right down into two. So Martin Luther was very true. It is the Bible in miniature. But it's also been called the gospel in a nutshell. All the forest of God's divine truth finds its beginnings in the seedling of this one verse. I mean, think about the words of this, this very famous verse. You have words like God, love, world, son, believe, perish, and eternal life. And I'm sure that a preacher could take every one of those words and preach for a year without intermission. Just, just preach Sunday after Sunday on each one of those words and keep unfolding them and keep unfolding them. Well, they're all connected in seedling form right here in this one particular verse. It's the most well-known verse in all the Bible. It's the most famous sentence that has ever been penned in any literature. If you ever go to a professional sporting event or if you watch football or baseball on TV, almost always someone's got a poster with John 3.16 written on it. If you go to In-N-Out Burger, you'll notice on the inside rim of the cup, on the bottom, it says John 3.16. If you've ever seen professional football quarterback Tim Tebow, have you ever watched him play? Well, he'll come out with his face black on and he'll print on the face black a scripture and oftentimes he's printing John 3.16 on his face black. And Debbie and I have noticed that along Sunrise Boulevard just recently, somebody's been busy printing John 3.16 all over Sunrise, all over the curbs, all over the road. It's just a verse that everybody knows and perhaps it has been responsible for the salvation of more souls in the history of of mankind than any other verse of Scripture. I don't know. I'm just surmising that. If you've ever learned a single verse of Scripture, this is probably the verse that you have learned. I know it was the very, very first verse that I learned by heart. Now, what's the message of this great verse? Well, if you could take the entire Bible and boil it down to its irreducible minimum, you would have the gospel. The gospel is God's saving work in Christ. The good news of what God has done to save sinners. So if you take the whole Bible, boil it down, you've got the gospel. Well, if you take the gospel and boil it down to a single verse, you have John 3.16. This is the heart of God's gospel. Now, 
We're going to be looking at this verse in five different messages. We're going to be looking at the design, which is God's love, the donation, which is God's son, the duty, which is our faith, the danger, which is God's hell, and the destiny, which is God's heaven. And we're going to look at them in five different Sundays. And I didn't plan it this way, and I probably wouldn't have planned it this way, but number four, the Sunday right before Christmas is on the danger. So we're going to be having a sermon about the very real danger that sinners are in. And if I could, I'd switch that around, but it just doesn't work for me to, to put that in any other order. So that's just the way it's going to come out this year. Now, we're going to be looking today at the design, the love of God. In fact, we're going to be expositing six words of Scripture. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. That's all we're going to talk about this morning. And I want to ask you three questions. Who did God love? Why did God love? And how did God love? Three questions. Number one, who did God love? Well, according to this scripture, who is it? It's the world. It's the world. You say, well, Brian, you think I'm some kind of country bumpkin that I don't know the answer to that? Of course it's the world. It says right there in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But it's not so simple. Did you know that there has been a controversy and a debate raging for hundreds of years as to what that world means? What is John talking about when he mentions the world that God loved? You see, you have two schools of thought within the Christian church. You have the Arminian and you have the Calvinist. And let me just explain really briefly who those people are. The Arminian basically believes that at the end of the day, that which gains a sinner entrance into heaven is the choice of his own will. They say he has a free will, and if he chooses Christ, he's saved. The Calvinist, on the other hand, says, no, at the end of the day, what causes one person to be saved above another is not the choice of his own free will, but God's sovereign will exercised on his behalf. So one emphasizes the free will of man, and the other emphasizes the sovereign will of God. Now, the Arminian says that the world here means each and every person in the world. Every member of Adam's race. Every person without exception. For God loved every person that he sent his only begotten son. And then the Calvinist says, no, no, you've got it exactly wrong. What this word world means is that it's the elect who are scattered throughout the world. Not just among the Jews, but also among the Gentile nations. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you say, well, Brian, which is it? Which one's right? The Arminian or the Calvinist? And I don't take either view. I'm going to give you a third view today that I think, it, I believe, is a little bit more biblical. I don't think that John, as a Jew in the first century, was thinking in terms of quantity when he thought of the word world. I think he was talking about quality. Not how many, but what kind. In other words, when John thought about the world, he's not thinking how big the world is, he's thinking how bad the world is. And that is what makes him astounded when he says here, for God so loved the world. I think John expected people to be shocked and surprised when they read this verse in his gospel. So, what do we know about the world from John's writings? 
Well, let's just keep reading. Verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, if the world needed to be saved, what does that tell you about the world? It's lost, isn't it? It's ruined. It has suffered a fall. It is undone and needs to be rescued, needs to be saved from itself. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. And other translations use the word condemned here. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Now when John talks about the light, what is he talking about? And nobody knows? He's talking about Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. John chapter 1. Notice how he begins his, his gospel. This is the prologue. He says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 9, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This can be nobody else other than Jesus Christ. And here John says in verse 19, The light, Christ, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So, in verse 17, 18, and 19, what do we know about this world that God loved? We know it was ruined, it was condemned, it was fallen, it was undone, it loved darkness, which is another synonym for sin and evil, it loved evil, and it hated Jesus Christ. That's the world that God loved. And I think that's what John is wanting us to focus on. Not how big or how many, but what kind of people constituted this world, this race of sinners. Now that's not all that John says about the word world. If you flip over to chapter 14 of John's Gospel, look at verse 17. John 14, 17. I'll just break right into the middle of one of Jesus' sentences. He says, That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him, because He abides with you and will be in you. So what do we learn about the world here? The world can't receive the Holy Spirit. The world does not know the Spirit, and it doesn't see the Spirit. You see, the world is a category of unregenerate people. People who have not experienced the new birth, that powerful work of the Spirit. It's a world of fallen men. And then one other verse I wanted to show you is from John's writings, but his letter, 1 John, way at the back of your Bible, chapter 5, verse 19. 1 John 5.19, John says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's speaking about Satan, the devil. So, from John's writings, the world can't receive the Spirit, it doesn't see the Spirit, it lies in the power of Satan, it's ruined, lost, undone, condemned, loves evil, and hates Christ. 
That's the world that God loved. Now, that ought to bring a shock to anybody who would read this verse. The problem is that nobody today is shocked when they read John 3.16, are they? Nobody's surprised that God loves them. They just take it as a matter of course. They assume that God should love them. But nobody's shocked. They expect it. They assume it. They take it for granted that God would love them. You see, if you were to go back in the 1700s, you'd find a whole different worldview, a whole different culture of people. And people, by and large, in America in the 1700s, believed very strongly in the justice of God. And sometimes they found it very difficult to believe in the love of God. But we've flip-flopped that. We believe very strongly in the love of God, and we find it very difficult to believe in the justice of God. Have you ever tried to reason with people that God will punish them forever in hell if they don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ? You just go out to the man on the street and just poll him. Do you believe that there is a hell and that people who don't repent and trust Christ are going there? Most people say, of course not. Why? Well, because God is a God of infinite love and mercy. God's going to show his mercy to all kinds of people everywhere. And you'd have to be a really, really, really bad person, like some kind of a serial rapist killer in order to end up in hell. But God's just going to have mercy on people. As long as they're sincere, as long as they're religious, as long as they're doing their best, they're going to be saved because God loves them. Oh, my. And then we come to the Bible and we read what the Bible says about people. And it's nothing at all like what people today assume is true. You know, we think, well, why wouldn't God love me? I'm cute. I'm cuddly. You know, heaven just wouldn't be heaven without me there. <laughs> we just think that we're just the, the next best thing to slice bread. You know, that God just has got to love us because how good of a person we actually are. Now, when God looks down at the world, what does he see? Okay, look, get the helicopter view. Look at this world from God's perspective. God sees a race of men in rebellion to him, doesn't he? He sees a race of people who are in rebellion to him, who are opposed to him and to his law and to his will. He sees a world that is ruined and wretched and that is under his wrath. Because they've broken his law. Time without number. And folks, I'm not talking about the person next to you. you. You need to think about this for yourself. This is how God views me if I'm outside of Christ. He views me in this way. Instead of us being attractive to God, and that's why he loves us, morally, we are ugly and repulsive to God. How can God love evil when his nature is holiness right how could God possibly love that which is diametrically opposed to his nature he's righteous he's holy and we're shot through with sin and apart from trusting in Christ we will remain in our sin till our dying breath and so this world is opposed to God but the truth is from John 3 16 that God loves fallen man he loves him 
He doesn't love angels in the same way. There was no salvation, no Savior provided for angels. We're talking about here the race of mankind who have fallen and rebelled against him. God loves. Not the birds, not the fish, not the cattle, not the angels, but man. Man is a sinner. Man is a rebel against God. God loves. So that's who God loves. He loves this evil race. Now, why does he love? That's even a more important question for us to ask and answer today. Why does God love? If he looks at us, he's not going to find any good reason. Right? We've already seen from Scripture, there's no good reason for God to love sinners. Because we're opposed to everything God stands for. We hate, as sinners, we hate what God loves. We just saw that, didn't we? That men love darkness. Well, God hates darkness. Because God is light. But men love it. And so there's no good reason for God's love to go out to us because there's nothing lovable in us to find. So God hates what we love and God loves what we hate. <laughs> we just read that men hate the light. They hate Christ. Jesus said, don't marvel if the world hates you. It hated me before it hated you. But yet God loves Christ. So everything that God stands for, we're opposed to. Everything God is against, we love. So what is there in this fallen race of men to attract the love of God? There's absolutely nothing. So why would God love the world? Do you start to get, start to see why this verse ought to shock somebody? It doesn't shock anybody today because we've been inoculated against it. We've heard so many times, smile, God loves you. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We've heard those things so many times and we've told people that are unregenerate that so many times that it doesn't shock them, doesn't surprise them at all, but it ought to. God loves for no other reason than God is love. It's his nature to love. He must love because that's who he is. 1 John 4.8, 1 John 4.16 says, God is love. In fact, theologians say, that this is one of the proofs that God must exist in plurality. He must be a trinity. Because before he made the angels, before he made human beings, before he made anything else, he was still love. And love must go out to an object. And so if God is singular, one person, there's nobody to love. And so they say that's just, it's kind of an implied proof that God must exist in plurality. I want to direct your attention to a scripture I think will help us this morning in understanding the love of God. And I want you to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to pick it up at verse 6. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now here he's talking about the Jewish people. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you by, from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." What does it say there about why God loved? Did you see it in verse 7? 
He says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. God didn't choose Israel because they were the biggest, the greatest, the most powerful, the flashiest nation on the earth. It says here, they were the fewest. They were the smallest. They had the least power. That wasn't, God wasn't attracted to Israel because they were somehow greater than the others. But he says, God loved them, verse 8, because the Lord loved you. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. That's no answer. Friends, that's the biblical answer. Why does God love? Because he loves. <laughs> he loved Israel because he loved Israel. You, you can't get behind that. that. That is the reason. God is love, and so love goes out from him. Now, notice some of the words in verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you. Now, that doesn't sound like our Hollywood version of love, does it? That doesn't sound like someone falling in love. Where, where do we ever get that phrase anyway? Anybody know? Falling in love? It's kind of like you minding your own business, just walking along the road, and all of a sudden, without you even doing anything, whew, you fall into this, this well or something, and there you are. You had no choice in the matter. It just sort of happened to you, and it was done before you knew it. And, you know, that's the kind of view that Hollywood gives about love. You fall into it. Well, God doesn't love that way. God doesn't ever fall in love. God sets his love. Did you see it in the text? The Lord did not set his love on you. It's a determinate act of his will. It's not an emotional feeling that God gets. God doesn't get the warm fuzzies when he looks down on this world in rebellion against him. But in spite of the fact that this world was in rebellion to him, he decided by an act of his will, to set his love on it by sending the world a Savior. Notice the other word here. God didn't set his love on you nor choose you. Those two words explain each other. God chose Israel to be his special people, and as he chose Israel, he set his love on Israel. You see, God's election of Israel to be his chosen nation on the face of the earth is in conjunction with God's love that he determines to set upon Israel. Why do we as human beings love? You ever thought about that? Think about somebody that you love. Maybe for illustration's sake, I, I can give a little story. Let's say somebody decides, hey, I think I want to be married. I'll go through my little black book, I'll call up every woman that I know, and I'll go on a date with them. Everybody gets one shot. <laughs> We're going to go out on a date, and then at the end of that, he says, I know I'm going to choose Tiffany, because Tiffany is more beautiful. I love the way she looks. I love the way she talks. I love the way she thinks. I love how we can have dialogue and discussion together. I love all the things about Tiffany. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, I love because I've come into contact with someone who is lovely, right? That's human love. I love because. God's love is altogether different from that kind of love. God doesn't love because he comes in contact with something lovely. God loves because he comes in contact with something that is unlovely that needs to be loved. That's us. Fallen mankind. I want to read to you a lengthy quote from a book by D.A. Carson. He wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. 
And it's a long quote, so I need you to stay with me. Tune in here. He says, picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach, hand in hand at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals, and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan and gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. Now, what does he mean? Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than that he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her. But if we assume he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile smites me from 50 yards away. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. So now God comes to us and he says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. That, after all, is pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us, and dear old God is get pretty vulnerable finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes to him. When he says he loves us, does not God rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knee, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you are attractive, but because it is my nature to love. And I think that was a beautiful quote because it's saying exactly what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning. God loves because he loves. Because he is love. Not that he has love. It's who he is. He must love because he is love. Now, there are some false teachings that are somewhat associated with the love of God that I want to bring up because this is a good time to do it. Error number one. <laughs> Jesus had to persuade God to love and forgive sinners. Maybe you've heard this one before. It goes something like this. The God of the Old Testament was just so mean and vindictive and judgmental. He's always bringing these judgments upon people and smiting people and uh, destroying people. But then along comes Jesus, the Son, in the New Testament. And Jesus is so good and so kind and so loving. And so Jesus will, goes to the cross in order to persuade this mean ogre that he needs to forgive sinners. You know, it's pitting the old covenant God against the new covenant God. And that's simply not the case, is it? The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Jesus didn't go to the cross in order to persuade God to somehow love and forgive us. God sent Jesus to the cross because God already loved us and wanted us to receive salvation in Christ. See, the cross, the cross is not the cause of God's love. It's the effect of God's love. Error number two, and this might hit a little closer to home. You may have heard this. I've heard it a million times. You may have said it a million times yourself. God hates sin, but loves the sinner. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And you say, well, Brian, what's so wrong about that? Well, actually, there's not a lot wrong about that. There is truth in that. God does hate sin, number one. God does love the sinner, number two. It's all right insofar as it goes, but it leaves out something that is necessary to be said. The Bible also says God hates the sinner. God, God hates sin, God hates the sinner, but he also loves the sinner at the same time. You say, Brian, that's crazy. I've never heard that in my life. God doesn't hate sinners. Well, let's turn to the Bible and see. Psalm chapter 5. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, did you notice it didn't say that God hated their hateful acts? It's not just that God hated their sins. God hated the people that are doing iniquity. Or let's go over to Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. It's not just that God hates violence. He hates the one who does violence. Or let's go back to Psalm 7. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. The KJV has it and many other translations. God is angry with the wicked every day. Well, how can God love this race of sinful men and still be angry with them and hate them at the very same time? That's confusing, isn't it? But you have heard about people who have a, a love-hate relationship with somebody. Even as humans, sometimes we can enter into this thing where we love and we hate all at the same time. I feel that way about snow. I love snow. Don't you? It's so pretty. You know, you're inside your house on a really cold day and you've got the fire going in the fireplace and you look outside and it's so beautiful, white and glistening. But I also hate snow. <laughs> it's so cold and nasty and uncomfortable to be around. So, if, if, if I can hate and love snow at the same time, couldn't God hate and love sinners at the same time? There's a guy who says, well, I, I felt that way when I saw my mother-in-law drive off the cliff in my brand new car. I hated what was going on, and I loved what was going on at the same time. Now, I am not saying that about my sweet old mother-in-law in the back of the room there. This is, this is a theoretical person talking now. <laughs> So we love because of something. God loves in spite of something. God's love is a masculine love. Okay? I might be skating on thin ice to talk about this, but there is a difference between the love that men have and the love that women have. Have you guys ever noticed that? <laughs> when a woman says, I just don't think you love me anymore, what she's saying is, I don't feel your love anymore. And he says, well, what are you talking about? I get up and I go to work every day to provide for you and take care of the bills. See, he's talking about actions. She's talking about a feeling. And God doesn't love 
in a feminine sort of way. God loves in a masculine sort of way. He doesn't feel the warm fuzzies for us. And that's why he loves us. God, in spite of having this disgusting view of us, determined from all eternity to set his love on us and choose to love us. For no other reason than he is love. So that's why God loves. Let's look at the third question. How did God love? Well, our text in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And it's easy to make a mistake here by thinking that when it says God so loved the world, it's saying that God loved the world so much, so very much. That's not the meaning of that little word so. It's more like this. God loved the world so. In other words, God loved the world in this way. In this manner. Well, what manner? What way? God loved the world in the way that he gave over unto death his only begotten son, that whoever in the world should believe upon him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's how he did it. So this is a love of sacrifice, self-sacrifice. God is giving the supreme object of his affection, the greatest treasure of his heart, he's giving that up for sinners. I have a, a pastor friend named Mark Webb who lives back in Mississippi. He pastors Grace Bible Church in Olive Branch, Mississippi. And he has come up with a, a gem of a definition for the love of God. And I'm going to pass it on to you. And you could also use this for your love. If you are loving like God, this is the way you will love. Love is a self-sacrificial determination to do another good. Love is a self-sacrificial sacrificial determination not feeling not emotion but determination to do another person good that's love and that's how God loved this world at the expense of his own son he sacrificed his son determined to do a race of fallen sinners good now what are we saying we're saying that from John 3:16 that God's love is expressed by the giving up of his own son in order to offer salvation to this ruined world. The free offer of the gospel. God sincerely offers everlasting life to anyone and everyone in this world who will believe upon his son. It's sincere and it's free. So we have a, a demonstration here of God's compassionate love. His love of pity towards all mankind. They're perishing in their sin and God provides the way of escape. Now if mankind do not take God up on that offer, it's not because the offer is not real, it's because of their own wicked heart won't let them. They're enslaved to wickedness and sin. But the offer is real and the offer is sincere. Now, as we, we wrap up this message today, I want to speak to two groups of people. First of all, the unconverted. And this is always hard because unconverted people always think they are converted. And so nobody thinks they're unconverted. You know, that's the person next to them. It's not me. And I, I don't know how to get you to understand if you're not saved, other than to tell you, if you have never been born again, or you became a completely different person, you're not converted. If you're the same person basically you've always been since you were born, with the same disposition, if you don't love holiness 
if you don't long to be in the presence of God, if scripture reading and prayer is boring or dull to you, if, if, you, if you think about heaven as being unending worship of God and you think, oh, I don't know how I'm going to stand that. It's going to be so boring. You're not converted. A new heart loves God and loves the things of God. It's been changed. It's been radically changed. Where I, it hates sin and it loves Christ and the things of Christ. So if that's not you, you've never been converted. You need to listen very carefully this morning. You ought to be shocked and amazed at God's love. Shocked by it, that God would love you. If you knew the Bible, it would be a surprising thing. Nobody's shocked today because nobody's desperate. How many people do you know that are desperate to find eternal life? I don't know a single soul. It's because our culture, the Christian culture around us, is like this, this thick and a million miles wide. There's no depth to it. If you want to find solid, deep Christianity, you're going to have to go back a few generations. You're going to have to go back in the 1800s and the 1600s and the 1700s, and you'll find people of depth and stature. But we've lost depth. Our, the, Christianity today is, is full with levity and silliness, and there's no serious-mindedness about the things of eternity and heaven and hell. That's just not the way it is. But we ought to be shocked Nobody sees themselves under the wrath of God. I have done hundreds of surveys. I've got this, this spiritual belief survey I do as a lead-in to share the gospel with people. And I'll ask them, if you die today, are you going to heaven or hell? I would say 99.9% .9 think they're going to heaven. It doesn't matter what kind of life they're living. It doesn't matter if they're strung out on dope or drugs or if, if they're living with their girlfriend or if they're living a homosexual lifestyle. It doesn't matter what they're into. They all think they're going to heaven. Nobody knows that they're under the wrath of God. But if they did, they would be shocked that God would love a world like this. And it's partly all our fault because we stick bumper stickers all over the place. Smile, God loves you. See, what we ought to be telling people is something like this. God is angry with you every day. God hates you. But God also loves you. He loved you enough to provide a Savior. He gave the very best that He had. He emptied heaven for you. And He calls upon you, He commands you to turn from that old life and embrace His Son with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's God's love for you. But we leave off that first part, we leave off the bad news to get to the good news. It's almost like John 3.16 read like this. For God so loved the world that He gives everyone eternal life. That's what we think John 3.16 says. doesn't say that, does it? That whoever believes in him shall not perish. I'll save that for our fourth message. When God looks down at the world, he doesn't feel the warm fuzzies. He feels disgust. He feels hatred. He feels anger. But in spite of those emotional feelings, he has already set his love upon this world. He's given a gesture of love. He didn't provide salvation for angels. He provided it for sinners. And so if you are unconverted, the message of the gospel to you is to flee to Jesus Christ. Get up and run to him.
realize the danger that you are under and go to Jesus to be saved, to be rescued from your sin. It's, it's like if there was a city that had rebelled against their king, committed insurrection, and so the king decides that he's going to go and destroy that city. But before he sends his, his armies, they surround the city, but before he tells them and gives them the order to go in and just wipe out every man, woman, and child, he sends a messenger ahead and says, I want you to send a message. Here it is. If you'll lay down the weapons of your warfare, and if you will unconditionally surrender to me, I will offer amnesty to you. I will forgive what you have done. Well, you know, God is like a great king, and God's coming to destroy a great world like that city, but God goes further than just offering amnesty. You see, because God is also just, he can't just overlook sin. He can't just sort of sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. You see, well, why can't he do that? I mean, I can do that. If someone does something against me, I just say, okay, I forgive you. Why can't God just do that? He can't do that because he's just. His justice demands that sin is punished, not just overlooked or swept under the rug, but that it's actually dealt with in full so that God's law is vindicated and his justice is satisfied. That's why God had to give up his only begotten son. So the king doesn't just send an offer of amnesty. The king sends his son to be sacrificed for the guilt of the people that have committed insurrection so that their sins can be overlooked. So if you're unconverted, the price has been paid. You don't have to pay that penalty yourself. But you do need to go to the one who has paid it and surrender to him and put yourself under his rule and authority. Now, let's talk a little bit to those who are unconverted. You've been born again. You know it. God has worked that work, that miracle in your life. My message to you is exactly the same as my message to the unconverted. You ought to be shocked and amazed at God's love because God has loved you with a different kind of love than the love I've been describing this whole sermon. Now, you, you may not believe that, but I'm telling you it's true. There is a different quality and kind and degree of love that God has for his church, his people, his elect, than he has for the rest of the world. You see, God's love for you didn't just make your salvation possible. It made it certain. God didn't just provide salvation for you. He chose to send the Holy Spirit into your life to awaken you and to convict you and to regenerate your soul and to bring you new life and to enable you to repent and to believe. You were dead. Not all people have been given that kind of love. Many millions will die in their sin and go to hell but God has had that love upon you if you are saved this morning. He's opened your eyes. He's enabled you to receive what Christ made possible for the world. You say, well, Brian, doesn't God love everybody exactly the same way? That's what I've always heard. Well, let's look at the Bible again. Romans 9.13. 
And we're going to take some time with this because this might be something you've never heard and you need to hear it. Romans 9.13. Well, let's start in verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Esau is going to serve Jacob. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Did God love Jacob and Esau equally? Not according to that verse. He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. He gave some things to Jacob that he denied Esau. And it was so that God's purpose, according to God's choice, would stand, not because of Jacob or Esau's works. They weren't even born yet when God made this decision. It was because of him who calls. The sovereign call of a sovereign spirit. We're not talking here about God's compassionate love. We're talking about his sovereign love. It's a love that grabs a hold of somebody in their sin and brings them sweetly, wooing them irresistibly to the cross, opening their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at some more verses. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll tell you what, when my eyes were open to this truth, in 1991, I was never the same. What is that, 23 years ago? I've never been the same since. I was converted before then. I was born again, but I didn't see this dimension of God's love and His sovereign purposes. And it so thrilled my soul. At first, I, at first I rejected it. But once I came to embrace it, it just so thrilled my soul that I could never get over it. Look at this. Ephesians 1. Well, I guess we need to start in verse 3. Let's start there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now that's the thesis statement. Verses 4 to 14 are going to unpack what all those spiritual blessings are that we have in Christ. Here we go. Very first one. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Period. Next sentence. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now if everyone, Arminian and Calvinist alike, all believe in predestination. They have to because it's in our Bible, right? It's right there in black and white. We just read it. He predestined. They just differ in why God did that. Was it because God looked down through the corridors of time and he knew that some people were going to choose him of their own free will and so he says, okay, then I guess they'll be part of my predestined group. It doesn't even make sense, but that's what they believe. Or is it because God knows that nobody is going to choose of their supposed free will that's enslaved to their nature. They're in bondage to their nature. So he determines that he will not allow the whole human race to go by and slip into hell, but he will exercise his sovereign love upon some. Notice what the text says. In love, he predestined us, not to just some role or function, but to everlasting life. It's adoption. 
he predestined some to come into his family. Now, folks, if you're excluded from his family, what does that mean? That means you won't be saved. This is, sa this is God's saving purpose, his predestining, saving purpose in Christ. And it's connected to this special kind of love, isn't it? In this kind of love, not the general compassionate love, in this kind of love he predestined some to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving forward in Ephesians chapter 2. And you've heard me quote this one many times because it's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, but let's do it anyway. Ephesians 2 verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now what kind of love was this in verse 4? What does it say? Great love. This isn't his, this isn't his ordinary love for the entire world. A world of fallen rebels. This is great, great love. It's, it's that love raised up a hundred notches. Because this love causes people to be made alive together with Christ. We're talking about the new birth, regeneration. God exercises this great love in causing some people to come to life spiritually and they live. They're born again. Let's look at another one in Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now he's talking to husbands here and he's saying, husbands, you need to love your wives just like Christ loved his wife, his church, his bride. How did he do it? He gave himself up for his bride. Why? So that he would sanctify and cleanse her. This is a love of God for the church, for the bride. And what does this love do? It causes the bride to be sanctified and cleansed. It's a giving over of himself unto death so that this bride is made pure and holy. This isn't God's indiscriminate love for sinners everywhere. It's a special saving love for his church, his elect. How many men are married here today? Would you just raise your hand real quick? Okay, guys. Would you say, yes, I love all women in some sense? Of course, God commands you to love every person on the face of the planet. You can't hate anyone. Yes, we love all women. But if you don't love your wife in a special sense, different from your love from all other women, something's dreadfully wrong. God's got a wife. He's got a bride. It's the church. And he loves that church differently, more intensely, than he does the rest of mankind. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. I'm, I'm laboring over this because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you're objecting to this in your mind and you're saying, Brian, that can't be true. God loves everybody the same. That's why I'm taking such time with this this morning. Colossians 3, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of this, this, and this. But just notice the connection there. So as those who have been chosen of God, well, what's true of someone who has been chosen of God? He's number one, holy. Number two, he's beloved. Now that would have no significance if God loved everyone in the world exactly the same way. 
There's a different, distinctive, special, saving, sovereign, omnipotent love that he pours out, he sets upon his own people. Or how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Knowing, brethren, what? Beloved by God. Well, wait a minute. Why would he even say that everyone is loved by God? Well, not in the sense he's talking about it here. This kind of love is connected with His choice. His choice of you. He says, because our gospel didn't come to you in word only. It also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That's how we know that you're beloved in this sense, how we know that you've been chosen of God. It's because when the gospel came, you received it and it transformed your life. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Don't miss that. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So they're saved here to salvation, aren't they? That's what the text says. Not to some, you know, role within the church or something like that. It's to salvation that they're chosen. And you notice he says, you folks that are chosen, you are beloved by the Lord. You have experienced the greatest possible expression of love that anybody can experience. Because this love didn't just make salvation possible, it made it certain. It saved you. It enabled you to receive the gift that was offered. Whereas others, because of the darkness and blackness of their own hearts, pass it by and spurn it and despise it. God made a change in you. The reason you're saved is not because you're a little smarter than the guy next to you who didn't become a Christian. It's not because you had a little bit softer heart and that's why you became a Christian and someone else didn't. It was because God loves you. He set his love on you in this way. Can you see that? Have I been laboring in vain this morning? Or do you see from the scripture that there is a special, intense, supernatural love that God pours out and sets upon his own chosen people? So that's why I say to you, be shocked and amazed that God would ever love you in this way. And the only application I would exhort you to, to, to do because of that this morning, worship him. Folks, you are no better than all those people that will never make it to heaven. No better. Be shocked and amazed and worship the one who has set his love on you and bring you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Call you by his grace. Work a new heart and a new spirit within you. And get down on your face and say, Lord, not unto us, not unto us, but to thy name give glory. And Lord, as your people today, we just want to come and express that sentiment. We are amazed, Lord, that you would set your love on the likes of us. A love so powerful, Lord, that it would not let us go on in sin, but drew us out, calling us forth, enabling us to see what we were blind to before. 
And Lord, if there are those this morning that have never, they've been saved, they've been converted, but they have never seen this truth, oh God, would you just help them to see it so they can see how loved they are. A love so strong that it will never let them go. Never. A love so strong that even if we go down a wrong path, it'll come after us and it'll snatch us and it'll bring us right back. A love so powerful that it has radically changed our soul, our heart forever. Lord, I pray for those who have never experienced this, this saving love of God. Oh God, would you, would you save some of those folks today? Would you open up their eyes to Jesus Christ and give them the will to flee from sin and to flee to him as their savior? And all this we pray in our matchless Savior's name. Amen.